welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. Yes, I have been on a brief but unplanned hiatus, uh, but I'm back now. As you may be able to hear in the background, I do have a foster puppy here right now with me. She's about 11 weeks old. Um, she's been running around with my dogs all morning, so she should be pretty tired, and I think she's going to go to sleep soon. Uh, but she's still chomping on toys right now. So if you hear a little crunching or squeaking in the background, that's the puppy. Um, anyway, I'm doing something a little different for this episode. Um, so last summer, I stopped at that big flea market down by Bowling Green, or in Bowling Green. And um, I found this stack of magazines, and at the time I didn't really know what they were. Um but I kind of thumbed through them and they seemed interesting so I just bought them and then um, I looked it up later online and it turned out I got a pretty good deal Um, it's the Kentucky Explorer magazine and they're not super expensive but they're not cheap if you want to buy like a lot of them so um, I have this stack of five of them and I've been going through them bit by bit and the articles in them are just, they're fantastic. So uh, first I'll explain a little bit about um, where this Kentucky Explorer magazine came from. And then I'm just gonna read you a couple of the articles and I'll probably turn this into a series that I just do occasionally. Um, But today I'm gonna read to you from volume 15, number seven of the Kentucky Explorer magazine from January of 2001. But the stories, uh, a lot of times, are much older than that. So, uh, yeah, enjoy. Kentucky Explorer magazine was founded by Charles Hayes Jr. in 1986. It grew a loyal and dedicated readership base and continued to circulate independently until 2020. Multiple factors contributed to the end of the magazine, but another Kentucky publication, Kentucky Monthly, offered to continue running parts of it in their magazine. So um, you can still read some Kentucky Explorer-style articles in Kentucky Monthly, but they're not one and the same. So Kentucky Monthly didn't become Kentucky Explorer, if that makes sense. Now, if you go to www.kyxmag.com, they have scanned the entire collection, every back issue, into digital format. And you can buy the entire thing on that website for $100, which I am considering because I, I love these magazines and I'd love to have all of them. Um, so anyway, sometimes I rewrite stories, but it, that didn't seem like the right thing to do here. Um, so I'm going to read them exactly as they're written. Um, So the first story is the disastrous 1937 flood at Louisville, and it was written by Robert Howell around 1955. Editor's Note. This is a second excerpt from the memoirs of Robert R. Howell, who resided at 2124 Duminel Street in Louisville. He was a native of Vancouver, Washington, but lived in Louisville from about 1917 until his death in 1966 at the age of 103. 
The year of 1937 was a disastrous year for the Ohio Valley. From the Pennsylvania border along the Ohio River on both sides to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it had rained for two solid weeks and the river rose to an awful height. Water began coming up through the city sewers. There was one big sewer large enough to drive a bus through that ran from the river to the other end of 7th Street in Louisville. The water was creeping up Broadway and busted through at 22nd and Maple. Finally, it came down Broadway at Ballard's and it still rained until we had to evacuate our home on Duminell Street. All my family went to the armory. I went too, but I didn't stay. I came back to Art Kessler's, my neighbor, and said, if you don't mind, I'll stay with you. If any of our houses float away, we'll float with them. The water was coming up in my backyard, so I put my washer on the kitchen table. I took a board or two, a five-foot stepladder, and put the boards from the ladder to the stove. I put my mattresses on that arrangement, then put the radio up in the closet. I hung our clothes across the doors, locked all the windows, the front and rear doors, and went back to Kessler's. I slept on the floor. At 3 a.m., I went to the head of the stairs and called out to Art to come down and hold a powwow on what would be the best for all parties. We had 26 people in the house. I said, let's get the Montgomery family and the Richardson group up in the coaches in the Illinois Central Yards. Your wife's father and mother are scared to death of the water, so we'll send them to higher ground. There were the three Montgomerys, two Joneses, and ten Richardsons, eight kids and two adults. We got all those panty waste out to a place of safety. All that was left of the 26 were the Feister boys, Mike, John, and Ruth, and myself. Just a nice crowd and always hungry, but luckily Art had just spent $100 for his winter supply of food. Art and I built a raft of barrels and planks, two feet wide by 20 feet long. We cruised up and down the stream in front of his house in a current of about three miles an hour running west. Nearly all the dry goods from Moneyworth's store came floating by. There were all kinds of ladies' undies, hosiery, shirts and drawers, and work pants for men. There were also boxes of shoes of all kinds, wash tubs, and baskets. We built a raft to anchor in front of the house on a level with the front door. We sealed the whole thing up with bags of sand. The basement was full, but not a drop got in the rooms to ruin the fine hardwood floors. By this time, Mrs. Howell and Bobby had been taken to Shakertown, 14 miles south of Bowling Green. Well, in two weeks, the water started to fall and I took a hose and knocked the mud off the doors and floor of our house. I built three good coal fires in the grate in the front room, the stoves in the kitchen and living room, and dried the rooms out thoroughly. By the time Mrs. Howell got home, I had everything under control. She said, if I had known things were this bad, I wouldn't have come back yet. I got her by the seat of the pants, figuratively speaking, took her down to the Montgomery home and showed her how ours looked before I had cleaned it up. I said to her, Suppose I'd let you come back to something like this. 
Just as soon as the water got out, I got to work and built good warm fires. Now you can start to live again. We cleaned off the beds. We had all our bed clothing. I had bought from John Truin 170 cans of vegetables such as hominy, string beans, corn, tomatoes, and pork and beans. I also had bought a side of bacon, eight dozen eggs, and four pounds of coffee. We resumed where we left off two weeks before. Of course, all the labels were off the cans, but we were lucky and didn't waste anything using it all up. It took some months to do it, but I sure saved some money on that deal. The Red Cross reimbursed John for his loss, which was all his canned goods and cereals up to the ceiling. I think they gave him $1,850, which was mighty nice of them considering what they gave to Miss Pender, who lived two doors from me. I went to the Red Cross and told them how all her furniture was ruined and I had to throw it all out the back door. They gave her one 8 by 10 foot linoleum rug, and that was all. The Claire's down the street, who had four working, got a new living room suite, a Frigidaire, a new stove, and dining room furniture. Our friend Mr. Wigington told us how he got $400 for 20 hogs he lost, and he didn't even own a hog. In front of each home, and in the alleys too, there was a large pile of rubbish. I counted 25 player pianos out on the sidewalk from 18th to 26th streets and all kinds of books. One most enlightening set was called Professor Elliot's Five Foot Shelf. I picked it out of the rubbish and tried to save it, but it was so wet it came apart and I had to throw it away. Mrs. Larry Devers on Sutcliffe's Avenue called for me to come down and help her clean up her house. The first thing I did was take up all her hardwood floors. She had been talking to a man who said it was foolish to pull that flooring up because it could have been put back as good as new. She came roaring in and said, you've destroyed all my floors. Stop right now. I said, your old man works in the office of the Standard Oil at 8th and Brown. He knows Henry, the boss carpenter there. I'll let you talk to him. If he says he can put that twisted flooring back as good as new, I will let him put you down an all new one and I'll pay for the whole thing. I got his number and called. She was in a bad humor, saying Mr. Bob Howell had the nerve to tear out all my hardwood flooring. She told him it was twisted in all shapes, some had pulled out and curled up, but some of it had just raised the wooden strips about two inches. A man told me that I could could have saved the whole thing and put it back. But Henry said that couldn't have been done. When the thin hardwood is twisted, it stays that way and you couldn't have fixed it no matter how good you were at putting hardwood floors down. She said, I still believe it could have been done. I said, if you feel I've done you an unpardonable injury, I don't want to do any more work for you. I shall tell Mr. Devers all about it. And I did. I told him that even after Henry told her about the impossibility of anyone putting back to the floor, putting back the floor, she still wouldn't give up. He asked me how long my son and I had worked. I told him about nine hours, both of us. He mailed me a check for $10. In 1938, parts of Louisville were still busy digging itself out of the mud. I went down to Joe Cook's on Campground Road and saw nine frame houses that had washed over a 14-foot wall at Portsmouth, Ohio. 
All of them had washed off their foundations and floated down the Ohio River, winding up on Cook's farm. They were weatherboarded and in fair shape. A contractor said he'd give Joe $300 each for them and would move them away and put them on some lots he owned. He set them all up, jacked them up, and ran a low, sturdy tractor under them to move them away. I went to see them afterward. They were nice-looking jobs. The next one I picked out is shorter. It's a reprinting of a letter written by DJ Kidd to the editor of a publication called Mountain Echo in London, Kentucky. It's from January of 1898. This one is, uh, it's a group of guys who went up to the pinnacle of Cumberland Gap to explore and they stumbled upon some Civil War remnants. All right, here it goes says, old letter reveals exciting trip to the pinnacle of Cumberland Gap. Dear sir, will you please publish the following in your valuable and interesting paper? On the 23rd of January, Sunday, a party composed of the following, including the writer, visited the pinnacle of Cumberland Gap near Middlesbrough, Kentucky. Henry McRoonery, and A.O.J. Morrison, Middlesbrough, J.R. Kidd and J.S. Beeman, Big Stone Gap, Virginia, and D.J. Kidd, Sturgeon, Kentucky. We left Middlesbrough at nine in the morning and arrived at the foot of the pinnacle at noon. After eating our lunch and standing on the cornerstone of the states of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, and examining the breastworks in the gap over the tunnel of the LNN Railroad, finding a few grape shot holes, we ascended the mountain to the top of the pinnacle. We went all over the forts on top of the pinnacle, also the place where the famous brass cannon, Long Tom, was planted. We made search for Long Tom, which is reported to have been buried on top of the pinnacle when the Confederate troops abandoned the forts on top of the mountain, but failed to find it. Instead, we found other relics of the war, including the following. Cannonballs, mini balls, musket balls, gun locks, musket straps, bullets, buckles, an old fork handle, a spoon, a coffee mill handle, gun springs, gun bands, gun rings, grape shot, musket screws, and more. Even if we did not find Long Tom, we were well repaid for our trip. All returned at three in the evening, tired and hungry. Okay, now you're going to hear about the first newspaper in the West being published in Kentucky. This was published in the Louisville Herald in 1924 under the heading, The Kentucky Gazette was published by John Bradford at Lexington in exchange for a public lot. All right. Westward, the press with the Star of Empire made its way and contributed its part toward planting the standard of civilization in the dark and bloody ground. On August 11, 1787, was given to the public the first number of the first newspapers published west of the Alleghenies. This paper was called the Kentucky Gazette and was published by John Bradford at Lexington 
then the most important town west of the mountains. The trustees of the town, in July 1786, ordered that the use of a public lot be granted to John Bradford free on condition that he establish a printing press in Lexington. Bradford sent to Philadelphia for the material, but it didn't arrive until the following summer when it was put in order. The first issue of the paper was shortly forthcoming. It was printed in the style of the times, F being used for S, and the subscription price was placed at 18 shillings per annum. The first number was a small, unpretentious sheet, scarcely as large as a half sheet of foolscap. Its contents comprised two short articles, one advertisement, and the following note from the editor. My customers will excuse this, my first publication, as I am much hurried to get an impression by the time appointed. A great part of the types fell into pie in the carriage of them from limestone to this office. My partner, who is the only assistant I have, through an indisposition of the body, has been incapable of rendering the smallest assistance for ten days past. John Bradford, the pioneer editor of the West, was a native of Virginia and served in the Revolutionary War. After it was over, he emigrated to Kentucky with his family. The year after he published the Gazette, he published the Kentucky Almanac, the first pamphlet printed west of the Alleghenies, and the annual publication of which he continued for 20 years. Mr. Bradford, as may be seen from old files of the Gazette, was not a brilliant editor, but what was better for the times in which he lived, he was a man of practical sense and sterling honesty. The great confidence the people had for his judgment won for him the sobriquet Old Wisdom, a title well merited. The editorial surroundings of Mr. Bradford would contrast strangely with the princely style of the great metropolitan journals of the present day. His printing office was a rude log cabin. He printed his paper upon an old-fashioned, unwieldy hand press, which he had purchased at a second-hand store in Philadelphia, and which, when pushed to its full capacity, would probably turn off from 50 to 75 sheets per hour. When Bradford wrote at night, it was by a firewood light, a bare grease lamp, or a buffalo tallow candle. The advertisements in his early issues are unique. One read, Persons who subscribe to the frame meeting house can pay in cattle or whiskey. Another read, The public is warned against tampering with potatoes or corn as they have been poisoned to trap some vegetable-stealing Indians. The following appears over the signature of Charles Bland. I will not pay a note given to William Turner for three separate cows until he returns a rifle, blanket, and tomahawk I loaned him. John Bradford's name was connected with the press of Lexington in one capacity or another, almost to the time of his death. He was also the publisher of the second paper issued in the West, the Kentucky Herald. The two papers were finally absorbed. During the existence of the Gazette, political feelings ran very high, and the Gazette was no neutral organ. In the Jan Jackson campaign, 
It was an ardent supporter of Old Hickory. In 1829, the editor, Thomas R. Benning, was shot dead on account of intense political excitement and scathing publications in the paper. The next paper to be established in Kentucky after the Gazette and the Herald was the Kentucky Mirror at Washington, a town situated some four miles from the city of Maysville. It was established by William Hunter, who in 1799 also established the Palladium in Frankfurt. The papers, thus far enumerated, comprised the Western press up to the year 1800. Since then, the West has kept pace with the marvelous march of civilization in newspapers as in everything else, and the press of Kentucky is second to that of no other state in the Union. I've got one more here. Um, this one is shorter, and it's called The Last Remnants. The Orr Kentucky Post Office was started by Martin Hensley in the early 1920s at Needmore, Lawrence County, Kentucky. Martin ran a mill about one-fourth mile down the road from Lonnie Blevins' store. Martin would hang a basket on the wall of the mill, and people would put their outgoing mail in the basket. The mail carrier, who was on horseback, would pick up the mail and return the incoming mail back to the basket. Martin decided to apply for a post office. He filled out his application and put down several possible names for them to choose from. Or, he said, anything you want to call it. So they picked or for the name, and that's O-R-R. Soon after Martin got the post office, he built a small store building. He ran the post office for a few years. Then there was an administrative change, so they took the post office away from him and gave it to Hester Boggs. Her husband, Johnny Boggs, ran a store down the road a couple hundred yards. She ran the post office until she and Johnny divorced. Then Martin's daughter-in-law, Lena Murphy Hensley, got the post office. She ran it until she died in 1954. I would go there to get a haircut. She would cut my hair for 25 cents. She would give the 25 cents to one of the kids and they would head for Lonnie's store. You could get five candy bars for 25 cents back then. After Lena died, Lonnie Blevins became postmaster. He had the only store left on the creek. Lonnie built his house and store after he came back from World War I. He had a big store building, a pot-bellied stove, and benches for people to sit on. They would come in on cold days, sit around the stove, and tell tall tales. Lonnie sold everything from pinto beans to steel traps. He ran the post office until the government started closing a lot of the small uh, country post offices in the early 1970s. Then he soon closed the store. Lonnie and his wife, Effie, died in the early 1980s. There were several people who carried the mail on horseback over the years. Some that I know of are Hobson Blevins and his boys, Johnny Lemming, Russell Hensley, and my dad. They would start at Webville in Lawrence County and go to the Orr Post Office, from there to the Edsel Post Office on Blaine's Trace in Elliott County, from there to the Blevins Post Office on Canes Creek 
back in Lawrence County, and from there they went back to Webville. The round trip was 20 miles. When Dad carried it, I was about 13 years old. I would meet him on what they call Sourwood, which is about two miles around the ridge from where we lived, with a fresh horse to finish the route. He needed about three head of horses or mules so he could rotate them. I met him out there one day and there was a set of draw bars across the road and you had to get off your horse and let one end down to get through. I was sitting on top of the draw bars when he came up the hill. I don't know what kind of look I had on my face, but when he got close, he said, what the blankety blank hell is wrong now? I said, Roger Lee has shot himself. He what? Roger Lee was my five-year-old brother. Dad kept a 38 pistol hanging at the head of the bed. Roger climbed up there and got it. It being heavy with a six-inch barrel, he pointed it down, pulled the trigger, and burned a hole between his big toe and second toe. Dad went to the ore post office and got someone to finish his route. He came home and got Roger on his back and headed around the ridge to Cherokee Gap which is, was about three miles, to a friend, Amos Caldwell, who took him to the doctor in his old 37 Chevy. The shot didn't do much damage. Roger always said he just turned it on one time. We didn't have a car. If we had, we couldn't have gotten to where we lived. If we went anywhere locally, we rode a horse or walked. We farmed with a team of mules or horses. If we had anything to haul, we used a team and sled or a wagon like most people. But that was the way things were done. That was also the end of an era, and I'm proud to have been a small part of it. And that was written by Donald G. Mulkey 